Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. just watch well we just watched uh the maltese falcon you mean the 1941 classic with humphrey Bogart and sydney greenstreet and mary astor and peter laurie gosh i love that picture yeah everybody loves that movie it's a great movie love it no we didn't watch that we watched the maltese falcon from 10 years earlier from 1931 uh, an american crime film uh Directed by Roy, Roy De La Ruth, uh, starring Ricardo Cortez and Bebe Daniels. <laughs> also starred uh, Thelma Todd, who uh, 
who uh, would uh, eventually be found dead in her car in a garage of carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh, I know about that case. Yeah, that's a hot toddy. Hot toddy. Wow. And there was some uh, controversy even to this day. Was it a suicide? Was it an accident? Or was it murder? What's your hot take? I think it was an accident. You think it was an accident? What do you think? I don't know. It sounds pretty suspicious to me. But um, but anyways, yeah, this this film came out a year after the novel on which it's based, uh, also named The Maltese Falcon, came out. That's a book by the great author Dashiell Hammett. Pretty cool guy. And um, he was a former detective himself, worked for yeah. the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which like, I know you're a huge fan of the Pinkertons. No. <laughs> what do you have against the Pinkertons? Mo- Molly McGuire's. They they were the they were the they were contracted to do a lot of the espionage for the Union during the Civil War and they really shot the bed in that regard. They're they're not they're no good. They're no good. The corporate and, stooges. And Hammett actually seemed to have a pretty dark slash realistic view of the uh, limitations of the detective. Wasn't agency. he super left like politically? Yeah, he was super left politically, and Love some it. of his. Uh, his fiction about uh, detectives yeah. was very cynical. You don't read his fiction and think, "Ah, this is propaganda." You think, "Oof, this guy, uh, this guy probably left a pretty intense resignation letter to the Pinkertons." <laughs> um, and of course, the Maltese Falcon is a classic book, and it's also um, a classic movie in 1941. But I'm going to say this: this first take on it, not a classic. There's a reason that they <laughs> that they remade it ten years later. Uh, I'd argue this is okay. It's all right. It's boring. That's the big problem with it. It's boring. Um, I feel like so. Just to give give you guys a little history of this film and this story before we dive into our assessment of the plot. Basically, um, in a previous episode, we covered Satan met a lady. That is also uh, there are three Maltese Falcon films. This one that we just watched from 1931. Then Satan Met a Lady, which is a comedic take on the whole affair. And then the Maltese Falcon that everybody knows starring Humphrey Bogart. And so they kept on trying to make these. And then they kind of hit on it with 1941. And we're like, okay, we got it. That's a that's a wrap. That's my take on this. <laughs> this feels a bit... I think I said watching Satan Met a Lady, which was just terrible. I think I said that was a bit like watching a beloved mentor figure drunk in the gutter. This is more of like watching like a high school play version of the Maltese Falcon. Like I'm not impressed. Good job for them for trying. Um, maybe it keeps me diverted for an hour. Maybe I'm kind of zoning out through parts of it. Maybe there's some good moments. Maybe there's some promise, some potential, but all in all, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like the real thing. It feels like a, a photocopy basically. It's not a classic. It's certainly not a classic, but I, I would argue that it's, it's okay. You called it a piece of shit before we started recording. What? <laughs> I, I don't recall that. <laughs> we want the truth. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. I, th- I think it's adequate. What, why, are you, why are you going easy? Why are you doing softball on this one? Uh, I, I think Satan Met a Lady was actively bad. Yes, I agree. But it made a lot of bad choices. I don't think this movie was actively bad. We can go in more detail uh, as we talk uh, in more detail about the plot. I thought the performances were largely fine. 
I thought the writing was fine. It was very faithful to the novel. I think the biggest complaint you can lodge against this movie is it's not a classic. And how many movies are as good as the 1941 Maltese Falcon? Not many. I, I think my complaint is a little bit more than yours. I understand what you're saying. It's certainly not offensively bad. It's not nails on a chalkboard. I would say it's a bit boring. I'd say it's a bit boring. It's it's kind of this point where maybe you feel like you should be moved or you should be engrossed, and it kind of it kind of uh I don't know whiffs whiffs it a little bit I think, but it's kind of interesting to view it just as they kind of like this is this is the kind of thing they did before they came out with the the classic film everyone knows so. Interesting to see the differences. Interesting to see the parallels. You're very interested in storytelling uh, as, as a writer. Uh, before we go into detail, are there things about this movie that you think were better, the choices were better than the 1941 movie? Or are there particular examples of things that you think were worse choices? Um, I haven't seen the 1941 movie in a while, so I don't feel like I can really um, call call out anything too specific. Um, I feel like it was an interesting choice to make it more kind of sexual. Although I would argue, and again, I'll have to watch the 1941 movie soon enough, but like my feeling is that the 1941 movie is kind of sexy because it's not, it's like beguiling. It's not, it's not yelling like, Ooh, sexy sex. It's not like playing the cheesy saxophone. This movie is. This movie is much more like sexualized because it's a pre-code film, and uh, you you definitely it it's more the sex is more in your face than the 1941 film. Again, my preference is that is the 1941. I like a little subtlety. Okay, I don't want people, I you know I don't want the, you know like, like <laughs> um this one does not have a lot of subtlety. This is like a guy like coming onto you with some cheesy pickup lines. You know the 1941 movie is more of like you know somebody who would actually you know get some basically <laughs> like if those if they're two people but i think it's interesting to look at and i think it's kind of cool to see a film an old film especially for for you know people who are or you know you're you're seeing um you're seeing how attitudes towards sex in media are not a, a not a static thing and they're not a oh in the old times everybody was a, a Puritan, and it's like no, there was a there was a law passed. You know, a lot of movies in the '30s are a lot more sexual than movies in the '40s and '50s. So it's just interesting to see it sort of. So like, how how long has it been since you've read the novel? I think I um I I guess I read it like I guess I read it like a year or two ago, but I was drinking a lot back then, so I don't know how much I remember. <laughs> but I also read it in like high school or college. Because I'd argue that the sexual content in this movie, this particular version of the story, is much closer in tone to what was originally written in the novel, the 1941 version. And if the 1941 version hadn't been constrained by the code, it probably would have been a little bit more open as well. Well, I, I am speaking as somebody who was voted in college as most sex negative on my college newspaper, but I preferred the 1941 version. I feel like sex is kind of like violence in films. Like I, I want it there, right? But like I don't necessarily. I want it done smart and tastefully, you know. And it kind of loses the mystery or the sexiness, frankly, you know, when 
when you kind of like if, if a guy just walks up to you at a bar and says do you want to have sex with me i mean like that's, it worked when i did that with you i know i mean but that you are the one exception to that rule kevin and it's just because you're so goddamn charming you know it, th- this this kind of pre-code stuff feels a little bit like that where it's kind of fun to see and maybe it's kind of a, a positive thing. It certainly thing. got your attention. There was a couple of moments which were discussed later mm. when there was some uh, sexual content that you like. So oh my God. I think you got, got your attention too. You were like, whoa. Then <laughs> you were rubbing no, I, your hands together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's Kevin's time. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but those moments uh, certainly weren't boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I think I think as a as a film, it's certainly worth a watch if you like the Maltese Falcon, and you're you like kind of pre code films, crime films. You're interested in kind of seeing that difference in storytelling. Um, you know, it it just to me, I I feel like it needed a little shot in the arm to kind of really get it into a for move it from okay to good. Mm. You know, but again. Movies have, you know, gotten increasingly faster with plotting, so I may just be coming to it from a more modern perspective. So I, I acknowledge that. AKA I have the attention span of a goldfish. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not arguing that at all. I'm, I'm just saying I think, I, I think the pacing of this movie is not dissimilar from the 1941 version. I just think the 1941 version was a stone cold classic with absolutely mesmerizing performances. And while the performances in this movie were adequate to good, there was nothing in this movie that was as mesmerizing as say Sydney Greenstreet. Yeah. Yeah. There's like not, there's not a lot that's special here. And maybe then when you have a compared, maybe if they never made the 1941 version, maybe you could sit here and be like, this is a pretty good adaptation. But when you when you know that's out there, you're kind of like you can't you can't really help but compare it. I guess for people who haven't seen any of them, I think it might be fun to watch these movies in order. Watch the 1931 version, watch Satan Metal Lady, and then watch 1941, and kind of <laughs> prepared of your mind blown. <laughs> and at the end, then you'll want to kill yourself because you watched this movie too many times. <laughs> We're like Star Wars fans debating the order you just see those movies. I would say. If you haven't watched any of these, watch the 1941 one first. But then you're just going to hate this one because you're going to be like, oh, it's not as good. I think the interest in the others is only if you absolutely love the 1941 version and want to understand more of the details and the nuances, then by all means, reach, watch the other. It feels like you're admitting that this is boring because you're basically saying that the interest in this is purely academic. <laughs> It's not boring. It's just okay. And why start out with something okay instead of starting out with something great? I think if you watch the 1941 version first, you might love it so much you'd feel really compelled to go and watch these earlier versions. I think if you watched this one first, you'd think, oh, yeah, this is okay. And then maybe never think about it ever again. Hmm. I don't know. I like to eat my dessert last. Oh, do you? Yeah, I do. But anyways, should we, should we start going into detail? Yeah, let's jump into the plot. Um, and this is pretty faithful from what I remember about the book. Um, a ghostly title card introduces us to our city of origin. We're in Santa... Uh, I almost said Santa Fe. What the fuck am I on? We're in San Francisco. 
Um, and now we're in a private investigator's office and we see two people uh, making out in silhouette against the door. And then a lady pulling up her tights as she exits. <laughs> so it's already pretty sexual. We're kind of like starting out with the sex. Um, and uh, now, of course, uh, our hero, um, as in the Dashiell Hammett novel, is the devilish Sam Spade, uh, a complete dog who hooks up with everything that moves and um, who uh, is a private investigator for this firm. The firm, of course, being Spade and Archer. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you be like alphabetical Archer and Spade? I'm not sure. I wonder about the relationship between these mm-hmm. two because Archer is the older man. He's more of a drudge. Uh, yeah, it's like you wonder what the power dynamic is. You kind of get a sense because of some stuff that happens, but it's just interesting. I could imagine that they, it's a sort of a uh, firm where Spade is the charming front man. Who, whose main responsibility is acquiring clients, while uh, Archer is the guy in the background who actually does the work. I agree. I could totally see that. It's an interesting dynamic. Uh, we also then see Sam Spade harassing his secretary, Effie. And, you know, he's just a ladies' man. He's he's flirting with slash um, sexually harassing all the ladies he comes in, con- <laughs> in contact with. I guess I just felt like... I'm not trying to start out with comparing. I'm just going to say it. Like Humphrey Bogart, like you can't, once you see him in this role, it's kind of hard to imagine anyone else. And for whatever reason, he just manages to convey so much more with the character where like some of this stuff where like other portrayals of Sam Spade just kind of come off like, oh, this guy's an asshole. But like he comes off as like, yeah, this guy's an asshole, but like he does care underneath it all. Like, like, Still waters run deep. Is that is that like is that what you got from him too? Uh I got from Bogart uh a strong ethical sense, even if he wasn't happy about those ethics. He felt an obligation to live by a certain code of behavior, even if he did not personally feel it deeply. So what part of my what am I said did you disagree with? Nothing. Okay, but you're like, meh. So I wanted a debate. Oh, you want to debate the Bogart performance? I thought, I mean, I thought it was really good. It's very compelling. It's a classic performance. Yeah. It's iconic. So, so, so uh, what, what are you, what do you, what do you think that I missed the mark on describing his performance? Uh, I, I guess it's a little bit of a, uh, cliche to, uh, for, uh, the female audience to imagine that the laconic silent male has great hidden depths of emotion that only they can see. Well, I certainly know that's not the case with you. Because <laughs> I'm not at all laconic. I'm always out there. Yeah, out there hooting and hollering. <laughs> I, I just lay it all out there on the line. I'm no Bogart type. But, you know, I think, you know, I think the 1941 movie, all in all, has a lot more class, if I'm being honest, than this. This, this it just feels kind of like everything's in your face. Everything's kind of obvious. Do you mean that just in terms of the sexual content or in other ways? In other ways. I mean, just in people's interactions with one another. It doesn't really seem to occupy. I think like a good noir kind of occupies like some shades of gray and some nuances. 
you know. Or it blows up like a garbage truck outside, whatever the fuck that was. And, like, this one it doesn't seem that comfortable being there, so it kind of goes for, like, you know, th- this, it's, like, it, like, fills the silences. Like, the 1941 is, like, not afraid of just being kind of, like, not explaining everything. This one feels like it has to, like, explain everything to you and put it out there for for the audience. I don't know. Something a little obvious about it. Do you attribute that to, like, the scripting, the performances, the direction? Yeah, I think all of it. You know, but it was their first go at it, you know, and, and if they were kind of just interested, like, we want to just adapt this book, then you can understand. Because a book has to tell you a lot of things because you can't see it. Uh, it's not it's not a visual medium, so uh, I feel like they kind of just took the book and were like, okay, we're gonna do this, and they kind of just ran down the line, basically. So, so then Spade gets a new client. Who is that? Into Sam Spade's office walks this knockout dame. Um, she is uh, named Miss Wonderly. She is uh, beautiful. She's the beautiful heiress to the podcasting fortune. <laughs> But um, she's not here today to talk about her great shows that she has on her lineup. She's here today to talk about a mystery. Her sister is missing. And her sister ran off with a uh, a man named Mr. Thursby. And I think she also had a few words to say about Cards Against Humanity and uh, Wonder Chimp. <laughs> uh, you know, while, she, while she's explaining all this, just as I interrupted... She was interrupted. What happened? Oh, yes. Um, oh, well, I, I, I guess what does happen? Oh, Mrs. Archer calls. Mrs. Archer calls. Mrs. Archer calls. Mrs. Archer is the wife of Sam Spade's partner. And uh, she and Sam seem to have gotten a little familiar, if you know what I mean, at some point. And she's calling him and he like does not want to talk to her. He's like, oh, God, booty call gone wrong. She caught feelings. He didn't. And now he's having to deal with it. She says she's lonesome. He just kind of rolls his eyes. In the middle of this conversation, who shows up? Mr. Archer. Dun, dun, dun. And he's he's an older gentleman, a bit (laughs) stuffy. And uh, so how do you think an older gentleman like Mr. Archer, who's kind of stuffy and charisma free, ends up with a hot young thing like Mrs. Archer? Is that at all realistic? Why don't you tell why don't you tell us your secret, Kevin? <laughs> Age gap relationship jokes. <laughs> they just write themselves. I'm sure he was just very charming and nice. But whatever happened, the relationship has fizzled out because now it's she's soured because yeah. now she's interested in Sam. Yeah, you make sure you never get a Sam Spade esque partner, Kevin. <laughs> you're gonna have to you're gonna have to worry. Um, and this lady, uh, you know, so basically Archer comes in, realizes Sam's on the phone. So then he picks up the other line and he's listening in on his wife making love to Sam in the old sense of what making love used to mean, like talking sweet, you know, not, not phone sex to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then he kind of like walks into the meeting that uh, Wonderly and Sam Spade are having, and he, uh, you know, he's all like, 
hey, like, my wife called. And, she, and he's like, oh, yeah, she, she says she misses you. He's like, hmm. Like, oh, God. What, like, what? Why would you keep working with somebody who was, like, banging your wife and you were upset with that? Do you know what I mean? Does he just really need this job? <laughs> his name's on the door. It's, like, his firm. You, you think that he could have taken him to court and dissolved the company or something or divorced divorced uh, his wife? Yeah, like, either of those two things, both, you know? Like, it... It's weird, like this character, like just seems to treat like infidelity, sort of like a like a like a plumbing issue. Like, oh, I'll deal with this later. So, why do you think uh, the plot line of Sam cheating on his partner's wife is in the story? Um, you know, and this is certainly in the Dashiell Hammett novel. I'm, I, am, am I correct? Yeah. Yeah, and. I think it's because, well, I mean, it kind of sets Sam up as as a pretty unclean hero. He, he's kind of an anti-hero in some sense. He's not, he's not a Sir Galahad. Uh, he's he's kind of a bad boy. Um, maybe it sets him up also to have a potential reason to uh, do away with his partner, which is something that's going to spoiler alert come up in a few minutes, um, and and it maybe maybe makes him a bit more desperate to. Uh, sort through the Maltese Falcon situation in order to clear his name. You know, it, it's not like the partner was his his best friend. It's it's like he was he he was doing him wrong, and then maybe that gave him a reason to kill. Do you think it's do you think it's more of a character choice or more of a plot choice? I think it's more of a character choice because it tells us something about Sam and what kind of a person it is he is, and I think that makes us have to wonder throughout the story if we can ever rely on him to make the moral choice in any situation. Mm. And when he tells a particular character, I'm acting as your agent now, can we believe him or not? Right. He, he's, he's not just, he's not just um, a cheater or at least like okay with cheating in terms of his personal relationships, but in his business relationships, there's lots of, uh, lots of loosey-goosey stuff going on. So why why did uh, Wonderly even want to hire Sam? What, what was that about? Did we already discussed that. Well, she thought he could she he could do a great show about what it's like to be a private detective in 1930s San Francisco. They're gonna hook her hook him up with an audio team, get his own producer. It's gonna be great content. <laughs> the Sam Spade Diaries. That's what they're gonna call it. Or maybe Diggin' Frisco with Sam Spade. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> She's there because she wants to make sure that the podcast people don't snap him up. He's a he's a hot hot talent. Spade work. Yeah, you know. Once once podcast is sniffing around, once those uh those Spotify people come knocking, she wants to lock it down. Actually, didn't Spotify just buy Wonderly? I don't know. <laughs> this is this is getting too in the weeds. <laughs> um, she is there. Uh, I mentioned because uh, she her sister is allegedly missing. So she hires uh, Sam and Archer to tail this fella so they can make this man tell them where her sister is so she can grab her and they can go back home before their parents realize that her younger sister ran off with a man. And she wants either Sam or Archer to handle this personally, and she's willing to pay for it. She plucks down 200 smackaroos, which in 1930. Which in 2021 money would be the equivalent of $3,400. Whew. 
Not bad for one night's work. And you're just following a guy around, so pretty easy. So Sam has Archer do it, then Sam goes home, goes to sleep. Yeah, well, it could go wrong. I'm sure he's going to wake up. It's going to be a normal day. They're going to be a little bit richer, and uh, you know he can keep banging Archer's wife. Sounds like a plan. Uh-oh. But what's this? Sam's getting a call in the middle of the night. What's what? happened? What's the news? Archer is dead. And the podcast deal fell through. <laughs> That's the last one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So he goes down to the crime scene to uh, see his dead partner. Um, well, not really, because he's given a chance. Hey, Sam, do you want to go look at your partner's body? He says, yeah. Do you think he gives a shit about his partner? No. He's kind of amoral in that sense. Yes. And um, What do you think? It doesn't seem like I'm not seeing any evidence that he does. I think it's a more interesting character if you like care about someone, but you still choose to hurt them, and then they die, and maybe you feel really bad about it. I think that's more interesting. But you know, whatever. He he's he. Sam Spade's a classic character. I don't want to. He's the bad boy. Yeah, yeah. Bad boys are overrated. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I like Philip Marlowe. He seemed more of a more of a noble knight type of. Yeah, character. I like I liked him. I like. He's a moral code. I like it's because like, like a private detective is naturally going to be a bit seedy. That's the nature of the business. So when you can have somebody who's more of a contrast to that, like Philip Marlowe, I think that's more interesting to follow. You know, Philip Marlowe's not perfect, but he's he's got more of a code, and this guy's more of like sleeping with all the ladies. It's like okay, whatever. Like you know, you'd think almost if you were a private detective. You wouldn't want to do that because you'd realize the negative impact of that infidelity mm-hmm. has on the lives of those who participate in it. So, you know, but anyways, I think, um, yeah, he, he, I don't think he cares about Archer, but anyways, now Archer's dead and, uh, Sam, Sam is at the crime hmm. scene and he sees a Chinese person and he goes over and the Chinese person says something in Chinese, and Sam answers in Chinese, and there's a moment or two of dialogue between them in a language we obviously don't understand. Uh, we don't find out until the very end of the movie Yeah, what this character said to Sam. I, I kind of wonder if maybe we should tell it now, because I think it says something about Sam's character. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, reveal it. This person, this Chinese person, tells Sam that he saw the murder and he knows who pulled the trigger. And the person who pulled the trigger and killed his partner was Miss Wonderly. Podcast business is murder. So Sam now knows she killed his partner. So the question is, what does he do with this information? Fucks around for a while. Yeah. Basically. That's a good point because when it's like, he is a when it's when it's more of a man who is digging into the mystery of his partner's death and everything else. Maybe he's doing it to save his own hide because he doesn't want to get blamed for it. But maybe there's a bit of like, I need to avenge this person. Maybe maybe there's some seed of guilt there that you can kind of say this person does have feelings. But when when he know when you when you know that he's known it from this point on, it's a bit like. What like what exactly? What was the point of all yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. No. No. Now refresh my memory, Kevin. If you if you remember, is is there this witness in the nineteen forty one work and the book? I don't remember. I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember either. And I think it's a little bit of a shame to include it. Like, I get why they did, and maybe it was a little clever, and I'm glad at least they did, they pre- prevented the audience from, except everybody who speaks, um, I, I guess, Mandarin. Uh, they prevented them from knowing about it, but at the same time, it, it sort of takes some of the mystery out of it. Like, this is a detective. He's supposed to be figuring stuff out. And it's like, no, he's known the whole time. He's just trying to... I think it's more interesting for the character if he gradually figures it out and it dawns on him. I agree. And then uh, he forms kind of an emotional relationship with Wonderly. Mm-hmm. And I think that relationship is more likely to be genuine if it's not formed with him already knowing that he's she's a killer. Yeah. If he forms it knowing she's a killer, he's like an undercover cop or something. It's all fake. Yeah. And it's not like he grapples with that. I mean, like when we met, you didn't know I killed your partner. Oh, oh, gee. Oh, whoops. <laughs> oh, no. You've got to take the fall, sister. Oh, no. <laughs> There's got to be a fall guy. And I'll have, a, I'll, I'll have a bad night or two, but I'll get over you. No, you won't. <laughs> So cocky. I'm very confident of that. <laughs> oh my goodness. But you know, it's it's a situation where like, yeah, it does kind of take something away from the character. And and there's nothing wrong with a good undercover cop story, because then that's about maybe using deception to trick somebody and then maybe grappling with that. But it's not that kind of movie. It's a detective movie. So it's not like we get a lot of payoff from that. Um so uh, it's kind of also fun trying to see them film at night. You know, it's so dim and dark. You know, it's like 1931, so you can't really blame them too much for that. But, um, the you know, the advances within 10 years are pretty apparent, I think, in the 1941 movie, just in, in, in terms of how it looks. It looks mm-hmm. much better. Um, so immediately the the cops are on Sam Spade's tail. And he his weird line to them when they arrive is "Come in, precious." <laughs> he's doing he's, his he's, best, Smeagol. He's all stretched out on his couch, and he does this pr- pretend flirting thing with them, or it's it's he's he's acting like oh he was expecting a lady to come, but of course they'll do. <laughs> he says, "Oh no, I knew all along it was you," and they they banter and. They, they say some negative things to him. He says, well, you know, it's been a long time since I burst into tears because a policeman didn't like it. Good for him for being confident in himself. <laughs> <laughs> and they uh, touch him or something. He says, oh, take your paws off me. It's a, it's a nice teaser for this eventual, what well, we know the film's going to, which is a Planet of the Apes crossover event. <laughs> so you're going to find out that Cornelius is one of the judges. I don't know the apes characters. <laughs> I can't keep it up. I can't, I can't keep this bit up. What a nightmare would that be? A Planet of the Apes noir. That would be the second season of Spade Work. There you go. Oh, is that the podcast? Yeah. Oh my God. Bring the apes in. They just go totally off the rails. People would be leaving negative reviews. Like, this isn't what I signed up for in season one. Wonderly magic. Crossover, the most ambitious crossover event ever. <laughs> you love Planet of the Apes. Do you think they could do a Planet of the Apes noir? Yeah. No problem. 
Yeah, it's, it's simple. What would the message of it be? What do you, what do you mean? What would the message of it? You can't be? trust lady apes or like the 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 system's corrupt. It, it would be the same message as you have in a human noir, only a, a post-human society. Cynical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, See, I know you, you need to watch those. Movies. I wouldn't. Wa- I wouldn't watch the ape noir, but I know you would. <laughs> you need to watch those Planet of the Ape movies. Uh, but then I guess Spade follows up this police intrusion by visiting Miss Wonderly. Love her, who has a great like dress robe with big flowy sleeves. Love, love her outfit in this scene. And who he knows killed his partner. Yes. That does, that's not going to stop Sam Spade from flirting with the dame. In fact, uh, oh. in fact, she uh, admits to him that, you know, that story I told you about my sister was a lie. And he says, well, you gave me $200. And for that kind of money, I let you lie to me every day. He uh, noticed that she is carrying a book called The Strange Story of the Little Black Bird. And uh, that's going to be important later because that's the Maltese Falcon, folks. Okay. It's not just a fairy tale. Four and twenty ba- blackbirds baked in a pie. Four twenty. Four and twenty. Is this like a marijuana thing? Yeah. Or no, I guess four twenty. That's uh, that was the date of uh, Hitler's death. Oh, and the Kevin. date of uh, Oklahoma City, Waco. Are you saying that? What's going on here? Are you saying the the blackbird poem is a a harbinger of doom? Yes. There you go. Waco. Doom harbinger. Doom harp. I can't speak words. Um, so <sighs> Spade basically, I mean, like, there's a lot of back and forth about whether or not he's going to help her. At first, he sort of tells her to pound sand, but then he let her ask if she has any money, and she gives him what seems like all of it, which is about around five hundred, four hundred dollars. Basically, she has five hundred. She keeps a hundred because she wants to. Uh, to live. She stuffs the remaining 500 down the front of her dress, and he says, no, I'm going to need that too. And so he reaches down her dress and grabs that $100. This movie's so horny. You know that you know that the guys in the audience watching this in 1931 were like, <laughs> at this part, <laughs> they're going hooting and hollering. Just because I react that way doesn't mean all men do. <laughs> Just imagine the whole audience full of Kevins, like, throwing their hats up in the air. <laughs> it's like, huzzah! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, so then he leaves, mm. and then she pulls up her uh, dress, and we see she has more money stuffed in her garter. Another round of hoots and hollers. Um, and now we meet an important character. Who's that? Dr. Cairo. Tell us about Dr. Cairo. Dr. Cairo, uh, you may remember this character is played by Peter Delory in the 1941 film. Uh, and this, he's just some mustache guy who with a weird accent. I'm, I don't know what accent it is. Is it like German? I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell. It, it feels like it goes through several <laughs> incarnations. <laughs> and uh, he's foreign, basically, is all you need to know. And... Um, he is now in the market for this. Mis- oh, we should probably mention. Wonderly has mentioned that she wants to find this statue, right? Right. At this point. So now Cairo comes in. He also wants the statue. Everyone's looking for the fucking statue. Um, and he offers to plunk down 
uh, five large for it. Five thousand dollars. Five thousand smackers. <laughs> five thousand simoleons. Can <laughs> can buy a lot of Planet of the Apes DVDs with that kind of money. It's a lot of C notes. And that's uh, you found you figured out it's uh, how much today? That's eighty five thousand dollars today. <laughs> Which is like a shit ton of money. That's like people's salaries kind of money. Damn. That's more money than you make in a month. That is more. Mo- well, that is certainly more money than I make in a month. That's more money than I make in a year. <laughs> Forget a month. So then, then of course, Cairo, being a crook, attempts to rob Spade. So he uh, pulls a gun on him, and then Spade overpowers him like immediately. <laughs> it's not much tension here. It's not like something out of. Uh... Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon either. It's not like a big f- dramatic fight scene where they're making lots of well-choreographed moves and hopping around. And That would be fun, though, if they were, like, flying off rooftops doing stuff. Or just they kind of awkwardly bump into each other like something you might see on a subway. I guess it's like Peter Lorre brings, like, a manic energy to the role in, in the later version where you kind of feel like he might be dangerous even though he kind of, like, acts all pathetic sometimes. Like, you don't know what he's going to do. He's ominous. He's Peter Lorre. You don't know what he's doing. But in this, it's more of like... He's kind of a vaguely pathetic middle-aged white man. (laughs) It's like if you showed up and tried to shake someone down. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) jeez. Snorting. Um, And so, yeah, so basically then he, I guess, hires Spade for real after Spade gets the gun on him gun from him spade gives him back the gun and then he proceeds to stick him up again so and this scene is almost exactly like the scene in the 1941 version yeah yeah pretty pretty similar um eventually i guess spade goes back to his apartment which i want to note is fucking huge my understanding is that San Francisco these days is worse than New York in terms of rent prices. And it's just like a nightmare. Yes, very expensive. Very expensive. And like small spaces for a very high amount of money. This thing, he like looks, I mean, this is like a millionaire's apartment. This is crazy, crazy huge. I mean, do, it, do you it, think that's a conscious choice that's meant to suggest that uh, Sam is uh Taking some money unethically? No, I don't. I don't think that there's anything conscious about it. I think in movies and TV for years they just do this because it's easier to film, maybe, and it may, maybe it is a more scenic, interesting thing, and they don't really give much thought into like how much could a private detective actually afford back then? You know, I don't, I don't think they're going for realism here with the living uh, accommodations. But anyway, somebody's there waiting for him. The woman who killed his partner, Miss Wonderly. Right. And she takes his cigarette out of his mouth and starts smoking it herself. Mm. A very seductive move. Wow. And she says she can't afford to uh, outbid Cairo. She doesn't mm. have $5,000 to give him. But I think she has something else, Kevin. Don't you ever get lonely, Sam? So she's, uh, <laughs> she's got something that Cairo don't have. And that is a vagina, her feminine wiles. <laughs> and um, so she's come to seduce him, but someone else has come, and it's not for seductive purposes. It's the police. Uh, they want to come in and talk to Sam, but he's going to talk to them out in the hallway. And he says, "What's on your mind?" 
beside your hat. It's like that is a bad dad joke from Sam. Not going to lie. Well, you know, Sam is a little bit distracted because he has a hot dame in his apartment waiting for him. Is that how so, you... So pardon him for not cracking wise to your level of uh, expectation. Is this how you act when you have hot babes in the apartment? <laughs> I always have you in this apartment. So this is, <laughs> this is why I always act this way. This is why you're always befuddled. That's right. <laughs> That's the excuse. Um... I, uh, well, you know, at this point, then things get a little dicier, even from there. What happens? A third person or entity shows up. It's Dr. Cairo. He's in the apartment. He uh, kind of breaks in. Uh, Wonderly starts screaming. The cops and Sam Spade rush in. And they find these two, uh, you know, kind of duking it out a bit. But don't worry, Sam Spade is a smooth operator. He thinks fast on his feet. Mm-hmm. And he uh, lies to make it so that nobody has to go to jail. He's like, oh, my old college buddy was sneaking in. Now, why did you do that, Joe? And then Joe, just Cairo's like, oh, geez, sorry. I was just didn't want to get mugged. Because you can't get mugged at the back door. That's the rule, right? And then uh, the police buy it, and uh, Cairo leaves with them. And then uh, Wonderly says to Sam, you know, if those detectives are waiting for me to leave, they're going to have a long wait. And she emerges from his bedroom wearing different clothes. And then she goes and she sits beside him. and She says, Sam, I'm sick of lying. And she starts kissing him. And a record spins to the end of the song and just keeps spinning. And then suddenly the next morning yeah you got so excited you hit the mic and you wrote in your notes they deaf had sex right <laughs> did they kevin did they <laughs> no That's anya <laughs> they just talked <laughs> they talked like little ladies and gentlemen nothing but decorum from the 1931 <laughs> maltese falcon rendition um so after they banged why do I sound like a sleazy radio DJ guy? <laughs> so they um they hook up and then it's honestly this scene reminded me a bit of you and I because she's just conked out, drooling on the pillow, basically totally dead to the world, and he's out doing little tasks. <laughs> and that's I think us in the morning, don't you yeah, think? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> it's a picture of our household. <laughs> Except in the, if if, they, if this were totally realistic, they'd have a giant dog jumping on the bed at like 8 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> but I guess they were like, oh, it's too much. <laughs> we can't get a trained dog in here. Lanny was born to play the role, though. <laughs> Lanny is our dog. <laughs> She's very naughty. What he's doing is he got up early went through her purse got the key to her apartment or her hotel room or whatever and then he sneaks over there to search it mm. and then he gets back before she even wakes up and makes it out to be just a little grocery expedition for breakfast so i'm going to be very suspicious the next time you come in here with any grocery bags and be like what were you looking into kevin my secrets hmm yeah your 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 secret apartment on the other side of town yeah <laughs> That I can afford with my less than $85,000 a year salary. Well, you've hidden your, your statue of a black bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty important to me. <laughs> oh, man. And of course, the black bird is a statue of is a penguin. Oh, naturally. Love penguins. Great birds. Yeah. The Maltese penguin. <laughs> they didn't know what penguins were. <laughs> Knights Templar never ran into a penguin. <laughs> um, yeah. The Maltese falcon's supposed to be a, a gem-encrusted golden bird, right? Uh, from the Knights Templar. Uh, you know, they put it all into the bird and lacquered it up to make sure that nobody could see the value and then shifted off on a boat that allegedly sank and yada, yada, yada. It's just a MacGuffin. Stuff that dreams are made of. So then, uh, who shows up? People are constantly oh, showing oh, up. Yeah, but this, it, this is yeah, this is like a sitcom. You just expect the audience to be like, oh, like cheering when like the <laughs> favorite characters come in. Doctor Cairo comes in like Fonzie, Fonzie fingers. <laughs> hey, <laughs> um, no, it's this time it's Archer's wife. She is back. She wants to and chat with Sam. Sam won't let her in, but she got a glimpse mm. of Wonderly wearing uh, a kimono. Her kimono. She said, who's that dame wearing my kimono? So then we cut to Wonderly inside, removing that kimono in disgust. That was pretty funny. Kind of gross, though. So then Mrs. Archer uh, gets very upset, and she storms off saying she's going to go talk to the coppers. And now what happens? <laughs> yeah, I know why you're blushing. <laughs> um. So next we cut to Wonderly in the bath, totally nude. I don't think you see anything, but it's kind of shocking because you you don't really associate old films with like being super sexy, frankly. Or at least I don't. Um, But this is pre-code. People are doing whatever the fuck they want. Um, And uh, she's scrubbing her feet and la la la, splashing in the bubble bath. So it's pretty, it's pretty risque. It's shocking. Kevin was blushing, bashful, hiding under the covers. Well, you were stunned. You were, oh my God. When was the code passed? What? Early 30s. And then it, it was passed. And then for a while, they didn't enforce it. Mm. So some of the movies you think of is pre-code or actually post-code, but it's pre-the code being enforced. And why did they, why did they do this? Uh, there were complaints about immorality in movies and Will Hayes and blah, blah, blah. All right. When did it get repealed? Until the 50s, I don't think. Wow. So, yeah, this is... This is definitely not enforced because, you know, she's ladies in the tub. And, uh, but then we get, uh, you know, we, we have Cairo, we have Wonderly, and now we find uh, our kind of third and final player in the game of the Maltese Falcon, the quest for this blackbird. Um, and that's Gutman. Gutman. And he introduces himself by sending a note to Sam Spade. He wants to deal. So Sam goes to meet him and uh of the three Gutmans that we've seen in the 1941 version which we have not yet talked about uh Satan Men Lady and this version the Maltese Falcon, I think this is the least intimidating version. I feel like I could have bullied this guy into giving me like a train seat or something, like let alone some high stakes thing. I think you could have bullied this guy into giving up 
his social security number, his yeah. bank account number. Yeah, you could have tricked him. You could. This is a guy where like he would be a good dupe for a scam. He's not intimidating. He's a little pathetic. Yeah, kind of a blowhard. Yeah, he's like gonna. I think you said it well when you said he's the kind of guy you scoot away from at a bar. You're kind of like, oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. And you know. He is trying to ingratiate himself with Sam. He doesn't have the commanding presence of uh, the later Goodmans. Yeah, Sidney Greenstreet yeah. in uh, the 1941 version. I don't remember who played the character in Satan Men and Lady, but it, it was, was a, a lady. female. Yeah, it was a lady. Um, and that was, I mean, she didn't really have, in fairness to that actor, she didn't really have anything to work with because that was a terrible script. So she didn't really give off a commanding presence either. But she seemed like a tough old bird, you know? Like, she didn't seem like she was... She gonna... had a manner about her. Yeah, she was, like, she was going to at least, like, you know, like, you know, she she, she was not going to, like, cave immediately over something, even though she wasn't that intimidating either. But this guy is kind of just, like, I don't think they really knew what to do with this character. I don't think they had, like, an idea about how to make him intimidating. So they just kind of were, like, do whatever, basically. It's, like... He's kind of a non-entity, frankly. Then Cairo shows up, though. So Goodman and Spade make a deal. Um, Spade is going to get Goodman the bird. And he's going to flip him the bird. (laughs) And then he's going to get a huge payoff. I think it's like half a million. Was that it? Was it 50,000? Oh. I don't know. It was astro whatever we saw this movie like an hour ago. Yeah, we don't even it, it astronomical fee for you know yeah, nineteen thirty one. Whatever numbers are not my thing. And um so you know they they shake on it and then uh Cairo shows up and is like, yo, that guy's working for me. Gutman, you better, you know, lose him because he's two timing us all, basically, which is accurate. And so then something weird happens and I I don't know if I missed something or what it, what exactly happened here? But um, Goodman goes back in and says, like, oh, Sam Spade, let's drink to our new partnership. And he's he nods at the waiter, which we can take to mean that he is drugging Spade's drink. And then he does that. And then, you know, Sam Spade goes into the office, basically. So, like, do the drugs not work on him? Like, were they just trying to delay him? I figured you'd, if you wanted to get rid of someone, you'd drug them and then do something bad to them. You wouldn't just drug them and inconvenience them for an hour. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, I didn't understand that either. It was a little bit confusing. And and then, oh, don't don't worry, though. There was a shit ton of exposition with Cairo and Goodman during that scene just to really liven things up. Just... That guy, he's working for him, and I'm working for her. And, do, 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 and oh, just shut up and move on. <laughs> but now we got another character showing up. Who's that? Captain Jacoby of Captain the, Jacoby of the consumer law firm Jacoby and Myers. <laughs> he's coming in here to sort all this legal nonsense out. Um, no, he has the bird. And who's he gonna flip it to first? Sam. Naturally. He st- uh, Captain Jacoby st- staggers into Sam's office and collapses. He's a drunken sailor. Drunken sailor. And he collapses on the floor carrying a package. What do you do with a drunken sailor first thing in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. 
Oh man. So yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, if if if, my, if I recall correctly, Captain Jacoby is not drunk. He's dead. He's dead as a doornail. It's like Jacob Marley dead. Yeah. So he, uh, you know, but he gets the bird to where it needs to go. So that's what's important. This man gave his life. So, so what do you do when somebody croaks in your office? Well, normally when that happens, I just grab their briefcase and ro- rifle through it with my secretary. I kind of just leave them lying there for, you know, I mean, that's a matter for the custodians, right? Yeah, of course. Usually. It's just common sense. Yeah, th- yeah, a couple times that's usually how it plays out. That is, in fact, what Sam does in this picture. <laughs> I don't even think he really checks if he's dead. He's just like, oh, uh, another one? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> like, god damn. And he, he goes through this package that he has, and he finds the bird. A blackbird. Oh, I... Before we... Before we get into this, we I just want to note something. Everybody needs to realize this. When Sam Spade was being drugged, Gutman was making a bunch of weird little noises as he fell asleep. <laughs> and that was perhaps the most ominous the character ever was. <laughs> he was like, huh? I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> that would be something like I would do because I would be like nervous or something. Like, it was like... <laughs> Very off-putting. It was very. So when we say he was not scary, that that's the exception to that rule because that was very upsetting and strange. So now Spade has the blackbird, the Maltese Falcon, the black, the blackbird, the blackbird, blackbird killing in the dead of night. All your life, you were only waiting for Jacoby to arrive. <laughs> <laughs> that's what this picture needs like a sad paul mccartney strumming in the corner <laughs> um so spade once again gets rung up by the police the police visit him i don't remember which it doesn't matter he communicates with the police and they they're saying basically like you were you were on the hook for a lot of this buddy and he's like, you know, I'll just get you the murderers for Christmas. Don't worry. Like, I'll bring them all in. We'll sort it out. And they're like, okay. But, like, you only have 24 hours to do it because we need Plot. to have, yeah, we need to have some arbitrary deadline, I guess. And so Spade makes it so the the whole gang gets together to hash this Maltese Falcon business it, out. It kind of made me think that... Uh... There's this big band of disparate and even desperate characters who are united together in their interest in this esoteric subject of the blackbird. And it kind of made me think that this is almost like a 1930s version of a subreddit or a Facebook group. Because <laughs> we, we've all been members yeah. of Facebook groups devoted to an unusual subject. And so we're a part of a little community with people who share that interest, other than that we have nothing in common with them. We may not even like them all that much. And they're all very sinister or tragic or somehow disturbing. And you're like, if I met you in a darkened alley, this would be pretty scary, frankly. But it, but if I need to, if I want to talk to someone about Superman comics in the 1960s, it's got to be you. Because who else is there? Yeah. So these people 
who are fighting each other and going to war against each other in some strange way. They're a little family. Yeah, they they they're like a dysfunctional family. So you're saying this movie kind of predicted internet culture. It certainly suggested podcasting. It <laughs> did. It suggested the you know the big podcast you know uh, corporations that would rise up into this medium and and also I guess Reddit people fighting people feuding people having all these specific opinions and ways of doing things and they're you know doxing each other and they're getting you know it just yeah you could do a you know what this is a terrible idea but I'm gonna say it aloud because it popped into my head and that's usually what I do just blurt things out. You could do a you could do a Reddit era Maltese Falcon where it's just a bunch of e people online fighting. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing actually happens. People just leave rude comments on each other's uh, threads. Um, but anyways, now the mods are about to log on <laughs> and lock things down because exactly. this subreddit has gotten out of control, <laughs> and Sam Spade is the is the mod to do it. He says that they need a fall guy, a guy, a patsy, a dupe. A Lee Majors. Yeah. Who's that? I don't know who that is. He's the star of TV. He's the fall guy. There you go. And Wilmer. Okay, well, we'd never mentioned Wilmer before because he's not really been an entity up until this so point. So this is Wilmer Parcast. Wilmer Parcast. <laughs> Wilmer Parcast. Wilmer Parcast is is unfortunately uh, a podcasting heir on on tr- tr- trickier times, and he's Goodman's protege, Goodman's yes. sort of bodyguard, and um, Spade designates him as the person to take the fall. Yes, and this is something that happens in every version of this story, you know. To, to greater or less, you know, resonance. Because the Goodman's like, he's my son. And like they're like, uh. And he's like, finally, okay, sure. Sell him out. And sometimes there's an implication that Goodman and Wilmer have some sort of a homosexual relationship. I didn't even know that. But interesting. Um, in this one, it, it just more feels like, the, I, I'm sure Wilmer was in other scenes, but you don't really. In this, it's like he kind of comes out of nowhere a bit. So then uh, Gutman gives Spade some money, doesn't give him quite the full amount, a bill is missing, and he suggests that Wonderly has taken the money. And so Spade immediately insists she's stripped naked so he can search her. This movie's horny. Kind of misogynistic. <laughs> Very horny movie. And you say the book was like that too. I take your word for that, you know. But it's pretty. Horrible. I know. Whenever I can't find like my phone yeah. or my eyeglasses, I always ask you to strip. Yeah, naturally. And I'm sure you don't have any ulterior motives for that. No, not at all. No, I, I don't you? know what you mean. No, I don't know. I'm not trying to be your fall guy. <laughs> You're not like a Lee Majors type. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, one thing that was kind of funny. I felt bad about this, but I I made fun of some things in Satan Metal Lady, not really realizing that they, they were in all of the versions of the story. 
And one of those things was in Satan Middle Lady, you have people constantly threatening to fog one another. I'll fog you. Go fog yourself. You know. Like, yeah. Fog is used. Mother foggers. Mother foggers. Yes. You know, it's like, okay, San Francisco is a foggy city. Maybe that's like a regional slang. But anyway, it's stupid. But this, in this one, Wilmer also exclaims, I'll fog him. So maybe that was in the book. I don't know. Either way, it's stupid, but love, love some made up curse words. Lots of fun. And um, after getting Wilmer all heated up, Wilmer and Spade start tussling and Spade just knocks him out. Knocks him out cold as a mackerel. Cold as a mackerel. Cold as the Rockies. Cold as Alaska. There you go. Cold is Sam Spade's heart. Because uh, now Sam Spade calls his secretary and tells her to, uh, I guess, flip them the bird <laughs> once more. Yes. His plan is taking wing. <laughs> I I'm so, I was so out of it at this point. I thought wonder, I thought wonder, he was calling Wonderly. Even though she was in the next room eavesdropping on the conversation. It's hard to keep these dames apart. You know, they're both blonde ladies. You're, you're so sexist. All women look the same to yeah, you. I, you know, they have different personalities. <laughs> they're not just hair colors. Jesus. Put shutting down my misogynistic bullshit. But anyways, um, so <laughs> then something very weird happens. <laughs> um <laughs> Sam Spade, and I'm going to describe what I saw, and then you can fill in the blanks and maybe inform me about what I missed here because I feel like I'm missing something. Sam Spade, while they're all they're all waiting around for, I guess, the, the bird to come in, right? Yeah. And he's sitting there with this, like, bizarre string toy. And let me try to explain this to you because otherwise it's not going to make any sense. Like, it's like a string toy. It's almost like, like... Ugh, fuck how do i even describe this it's like an embro- like it, like an embroidery thing where you can move the strings that are like attached to this surface in a way that makes different shapes but it's like half of it's just like a woman's like an like a silhouette of a woman but then you can make the face part different shapes to make her look like she has a big nose or big lips or whatever a big protruding forehead and he's sitting there Dicking around with that, making the lady's face making the lady's face look weird, and I'm sitting here wondering, like, am I high? Like, what the hell is happening right now? Was this a popular 1931 toy? I kind of want one, <laughs> but what what is happening? Did I miss anything? No, no. Okay, yeah, that was just fucking weird. And he looks delighted with himself. He looks very pleased. And then what are the next item in your notes? Oh, God. So <laughs> we see the other members of this little party also sleeping on, I guess, the couch. And let's go to the more innocuous one first. Uh, Cairo is under a fl- like a flurry of newspaper, so you can't even see him. He's just conked out asleep on the couch. And Goodman is sitting there. Do you want to <laughs> say it? You say it. He's got his feet in a bowl of water. No real clear reason why that is, but it's a little bit You have written disturbing. down your notes. Goatman is washing his feet with two question marks. 
I mean, I think that should be everyone's reaction because I, I mean, like I just the gall. I mean, this is probably a more threatening energy than any time, you know, th- than any other scene that he, he brings to this scene because he. Can you imagine going anywhere for a business deal and it's like an illegal business deal and then. You know, maybe there's some delays, but you're going to stick around. And then being like, sir, can I have a bowl? Oh, sure. Why do you need one? Or maybe the guy doesn't ask. And then you fill it up with water, take off your shoes and socks, and put your feet into the bowl. The gall that takes. This is some... And and, and everyone else around, that nobody says something. Nobody's like, you know, it's a little, it's a little off-putting. Maybe don't do that to my bowl. It just, I, it's just... Boggles the mind. Anyway, so this is a more threatening Goodman energy that we want to see, but it comes a little bit too late and in a too weird of a way. And we didn't want to see it like this. No, no, we didn't. We, 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 the monkey's paws curling. We're like, we want to be scared of Goodman and then burn. <laughs> Not like this, please. So the bird finally comes in. The bird comes home to roost. Finally. Don't glare at me. <laughs> How dare you? I can do whatever bird puns I want. Ha ha ha. Oh. <laughs> my computer just died. <laughs> In response to my bird puns, apparently. So that's fun. You're power mad. So uh, they finally get the bird. The bird comes home to roost, if you will. Allow me to do some puns. And they're scraping the polish off. Um, it's supposed to have glinting gold and gems and jewels, but unfortunately, it's just lead. It's a fake. It's not a real magic treasure bird. It's just a lead statue of a falcon. They got the bird, and it's fake. And so uh, the guys, Wilmer, Cairo, and Gutman, they decide to bounce. And they decide some Russian guy we've never heard of before must have done it. Yeah. So they're out of there. One of the other subreddit users. And as soon as they leave, Spade calls the cops on them. Yeah. He promised the cops that he would round up their their murderers. And uh, he did just that. But there's still some work to do. What is that work? Spade confronts Wonderly with the, the fact that he's known this whole time that she killed Archer. And she has a kind of fun response. I didn't mean to at first. What, like at the beginning, <laughs> you didn't mean to? Yeah. Um, she figured Thursby would be nailed for killing Archer and that he, it would get this Thursby character off her back. Right. And um, so this is kind of, you know, the kind of emotional climax of the film. Yes, this is really the emotional core of the 1941 version. Is it the emotional core of the 1931 version? I think it falls a little flat, to be honest. I don't know if I really bought that these two were madly in love. Because we're, we're supposed to believe that they're in love, but he is still going to turn her over to the cops. Or, or not even in love. Like, if you want to say they're both sociopaths, like, I don't know if I buy that they're in lust or, like, you know, passionate about each other in some way. I, I don't yeah. know if I buy that. I think that's... um, And I'm going to say, like... I, it it feels more like two people who had like one casual Tinder hookup and then turn out one of them was murder and you turn them in. It, it didn't it didn't feel like it had a lot of heft behind it. Right. But you know it wasn't horrible. It wasn't stupid like in Satan Metal Lady. It just it didn't do a lot for me. But um, you know 
she's saying, you know, you, you don't love me. And he says, oh, I, I think I do, but what of it? You know, it's like, so it's kind of that classic. Do you think she loves him? No, I think she's playing him. Do you think he'll get over her? Maybe not entirely. So then the police come, they take her away, and the final uh, goodbye in that section is a little bit cold. Yeah, it's a little bit cold. It's a bit like you left food out too long, and it's kind of a little bit, yeah, maybe you need to reheat this a little bit. And this is where the 1941 version ends. Which was smart. <laughs> this version goes on a few more minutes. What happens? I mean, I think the, the, the benefit of ending it, it's like, you know, end it you leave the party before you become unwelcome, you know, mm. like you like you get out of there, have people missing you in this, the, they stay at the party a little bit too long when, you know, you're trying to clean up and get them out of there. Spade visits Wonderly in jail. Oh no. First, first we see the press coverage. Um, the press mentioned the, um, the merchant at the beginning who, who was the uh, individual speaking. Um, I, I don't recognize different Chinese languages, but either Cantonese or Mandarin to Sam Spade. And um, he uh, is revealed to have seen the murder and blah, blah, blah. So that, that kind of pays off then. I don't really know. I think, I think they could have done without that whole thing, but now Sam Spade visits Wonderly in jail. So what does he find visiting San Quentin? Uh, his, his old flame in San Quentin. Uh, she didn't seem to be doing that well. She's lying face down on a cot. Uh, she says, Sam, I, I guess you just couldn't stay away from me, can you? And he has some news for her. What's the news? He got a promotion or he got hired by the uh, DA's office. He's heading up investigations there. Uh, he sticks his hands through the bars, but she doesn't take it. And so he, uh walks away as she weeps and he tells the matron to be nice to Wonderly and get her nice things and he'll pay the Candy, bill. Candy, cigarettes. Yeah, he knows how to treat a skirt. That's what and you she got said, me in jail. That's why I fell in love with you. <laughs> she says, who'll pay for this? And and he says, I'll pay the bill through the DA office. Yes, sir. No. Yes, sir. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> what do you make of ending it there? Why do you think... They had this extra goodbye scene. Um, my theory is the studio executives saw it and tacked that on at the end because they're like, "That's too dark. People don't want to see that. They want to. They want to laugh, huh?" And they tacked that on at the end. It felt very tacked on. I don't think that's in the book. If it is, I forgot. But yeah, it felt tacked on to make the whole thing seem like they're okay with each other, even though he sent her to jail. I mean, in the Humphrey Bogart version, it's kind of like she's probably going to get executed or at least be in jail for a very long time. Like, it's not going to work out. It's not happy. Yeah. Like, but this one tried to be like, nah, she's not going to be so sad in jail. She's going to have cigarettes, see, and candy, <laughs> see. The DA's office is going to pay for it. Ha ha ha. Like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, it just seemed kind of dumb <laughs> but I, I feel this feels like studio executive meddling like they didn't really get what the point of the book was or the point of the story was so they just were like make it a little bit happier so do you think this 1931 version ever takes flight <laughs> well i think elements of the film you could maybe see the the glint of treasure beneath its uh 
lacquered surface. Um, but I would I would say for the most part it it drops like a stone. It drops like a lead figurine. It's the stuff nightmares are made of. No, I wouldn't say that, but it's the stuff that kind of boring dreams that you forget immediately upon waking up are made of. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore two underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O. Thanks, Thanks so, so much, much for, for listening. listening.